Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content and also stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, Search Country Music Made Me and give us a follow there as well. On today's episode, we are excited to welcome Corey Kent. Now, his musical journey began as a youngster when he fronted the Western swing band Oklahoma Stomp. Now, after the band broke up, he decided to head to Nashville to chase a career in music. After about a year, he headed to Oklahoma State to earn his business degree. And once that was finished up, it was back to Nashville to continue the chase for a career in music. It has been ongoing since 2016 and 2021 was a big year and 2022 is set up to be even bigger. So please enjoy our conversation with Corey Kent. That's sort of the point, the age of three, where you began to sing and you began to find your voice. And so from that age, do you have any memories of that or like stories that your parents tell of a moment where you sort of found your voice? I mean, I think I was like, uh, so I have a four-year-old little girl right now. And I think it was probably similar to this. It's just like a, you know, sing along to something on the radio and your parents are kind of like, oh, she actually is hitting the note, right? Like she's sound, she's, she can hear what is right and wrong. Right. Uh, and I, I think it was more that, I, you know, I don't think my parents growing up were like, oh my gosh, we've got a prodigy on our hands or anything like that. I was, I was a pretty normal kid, you know, playing sports and wanted to do that, you know, throughout school and played football and wrestled and did all the normal stuff. Um, but, you know, I think I was eight when they put a guitar in my hands. And then I think the interest was what, you know, they, they saw was different. And I don't think that my parents would tell you that um, I had this just crazy natural ability. I just had a crazy unnatural interest. Like I just loved it. And, you know, I had friends that were, their parents were putting them in piano lessons or they were, and it was just like pulling teeth to get these people to practice apparently. And right uh, for me, it was like, I'd come home from football practice and I'd grab my guitar and I'd be in my room for five hours, you know, and I just loved it. I ate it up. So I'd say like eight, between eight and like 10, 11 years old is where they were like, oh, this is, this kid might be a little bit different than the average guy when it comes to music, because I really just loved working at it and, and getting better. And did you have any talented musical people within your family? Like, was that something you had around you growing up or, or were you really an anomaly when it came to that within your family? I would say I'm more of an anomaly, but my mom can sing. She's a great, beautiful singer, um, but nobody played instruments. Nobody had any musical background, really, of any sort. Uh, so, you know, picking up an instrument was pretty foreign to my family. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's really where I started I, before being a quote unquote vocalist and like approaching that, like an instrument, I approached guitar, like my instrument and wanted to get proficient in that. And so, yeah, I think, uh, 
my family thought it was pretty cool though. Cause you know, now they had something to sit around and listen to at the gatherings and stuff like that. So, uh, but it was, it was, I would not consider our family very musical, which is kind of cool. You know, it just seemed like as I got older and it turned from a interest to a hobby and from a hobby into a job and from a job into like a full on career, it's been, it's been cool just to see how my family receives that. That's still unique and different to them. And, uh, and it's a fun topic of conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And family, of course, is a big part to anyone's journey. And I wanted to ask you about a few certain family members that I saw you mention along the way. And one was your great grandfather, who you mentioned started a lumber mill in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. And yeah, I think you sort of mentioned he was one who instilled hard work and the importance of education within the family. And now is he someone you knew? When you were younger, you had the chance to know? So this is my grandfather on my mom's side, his dad. And um, I, he unfortunately had passed before, like right before I was born. Oh, okay. But our family has done a really good job of um, just passing down the, the past and our culture and where we come from. And so my grandfather talks about his dad and talks about him so often that he did a really great job of, um, you know, relaying to us where we came from and talked about his dad so often and in such great detail that we feel all the generations below, like we feel like we knew this man. Uh, and we see pictures, of course, and we talk about his journey and, and what he passed on to us. And yeah, so I, while I didn't get the chance to meet him, you know, face to face, uh, I feel like, I mean, I know almost every detail about this man, which is pretty cool. Uh, and I hope that I can do that for my kids when I, whenever I talk about my dad or my grandfather and, and let them know the kind of, the kind of people that we had in our family and what was important to them. And, and so, yeah, I mean, he, he did start a lumber mill and broken bow. Uh, and I think it's really cool that you did your homework enough to even know any of this story, but, um, he had a ninth grade education and um, you know, he just was kind of the typical story of the generation stopped going to school to help his family provide. And, and, you know, somewhere along the way was, he was very successful in that industry and, and was able to buy some land and, and start teaching my grandfather how to, how to buy land, how to, how to look for certain things that would lead to prosperity when you do buy land. And, and so our whole, family legacy is kind of built on the things that he passed down. Um, and you know, he was, uh, he was married to one woman his whole life and, and then my grandfather the same. And, and so like that showing that that was possible, right. And seeing a firsthand example of that and then a legacy of that has, has been pretty cool. And, um, yeah, I mean, taught us, we all, we all believe, uh, the same things. And so he's passed down faith and, uh, it's just kind of cool to see like the patriarch of a family have lasting impact generations to come. And, and uh, I hope I can be that for my family. So, right. And there was a piece of land. I saw you mention you showed a picture taking your girls to a piece of land. And you mentioned that it was an area that you cherished the most growing up. Now, is that a family farm or a family piece of land? Yeah, it is. Um, so my, my grandfather currently, lives on that land and uh they have 
thousands and thousands of acres in Broken Bow. Oh, okay. Um, and so, but this, the homestead is particularly the piece that we're, we're so fond of just, it's where my mom was born and raised. Um, oh, wow. And, and so same house, same property, same pond, same entrance, all, you know, it's just, it's just nostalgic, but it's pretty cool because it's like, it's like living legend, right? Uh, it's, it, if you've ever watched the show Yellowstone, I feel like our family is a lot like that family in Broken Bow. It's, oh, okay. it's a much smaller, much smaller scale, but it's, it's this, uh, it's a, it's a very similar setting and that there's a huge Choctaw population there. And, um, and uh, they're building the town up, you know, casinos are popping up and it's become a very heavily tourist, uh, a big tourist attraction. Oh, okay. You know, maybe 3000 people that live in this town, but now there's like almost 10,000 cabins for rent. Oh, wow. And so it's, it's become a, in the last few years, the place that we grew up knowing is, is changing rapidly and it's all good for the economy and for, uh, you know, the growth of the town and everything. But, um, yeah, that particular piece of land is in the heart of everything that's going on. So we're sitting there on this, you know, where my mom was born and, uh, and raised. And now it takes 30 minutes to take a left out of the front of their house because they're, oh, wow. you're trying to, you're in the heart of all of the development. And we're the, we're the family that just keeps sitting on this land. And we're like, we're not selling this. Like, this is, <laughs> this is our home. Right. Uh, right. So it's a, it's a pretty wild story. Somebody actually told me, you got to watch Yellowstone. Like, it's just like your family story <laughs> right now. And I had never watched it. And after episode one, I was calling my grandpa who doesn't even have a cell phone uh he refuses and so i called the house and i'm like you guys gotta watch yellowstone this is unbelievably like parallel to what's going on in your world but uh yeah it's it's a it's a special place and uh you know we take our kids out there to you know get them familiar with the land and and hopefully like i said just keep passing on that history and that legacy of where we come from that's awesome. And so with family being such an important part of your journey and that land and the changes that you're seeing around it, do those themes make it into your songwriting quite a bit when you're sitting down to write a song? Do you pull from those memories quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think some I get some songs I get way more specific than others. Um, I know there's a song called Long Way that I wrote that that references, um, you know, references my my story my great-grandfather my grandfather where i went to school uh there's a line in it said um uh he believed that i needed more than a small town lumber mill knowledge like it gets very specific uh so specific that at one point you know my the people on my team were like hey i don't know if this is gonna work it might be might be a little far-fetched to think people are gonna relate to it oh, if it's okay. this specific Right. What's been cool is that the more specific I seem to get, the more universally accepted and and relatable it becomes. And I don't know why that is, but, you know, I I recently um, I haven't released this yet, but I wrote a song called Bixby, which is my hometown. Right. Yeah. Um, And it it hadn't been put out yet, but I've been, you know, releasing maybe a, a verse or a chorus to social media and we rolled through and played Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I played that song and people, you know, it was, it was a moment where I could just back off the mic and they sang me the song that hasn't been out yet. Oh, and wow. it, it was another one of those songs where it's like, who would have thought that somebody would want to sing about Bixby, Oklahoma. And people are, 
mentally taking Bixby and removing it and inserting their hometown and relating to this song. And it's pretty cool to watch. So I get specific, um, but I also, you know, the songs on the radio aren't always that specific either. So we, we try to toe the line and make sure that we round out these records and, and give, uh, give a little taste of everything um, to appeal to a wide variety of people. Right. And so your first performance, I saw, of course, the one that sort of always mentioned is your performance at Kane's ballroom. But I also saw that maybe around that time you performed at the Oklahoma state fair. So which one was your very first performance? Um, So the state fair was actually first. Uh, and it landed me the, the real first gig, uh, oh, okay. which, which was Kane's. Yeah. Um, so the reason I say the real first gig is Kane's was where I got paid for the first time to play music. Uh, I, it, there was a real crowd there to see us, you know, where people bought tickets to, to watch us. You know, the fair was I got a, somebody pulled a favor and we're like, yeah, get up there and play for 30 minutes, you know? And, oh, okay. Uh, and and people were just walking by, you know, nobody was there. Nobody knew that I was there. Nobody was there to see me, maybe my dad or my mom or something. But right. Um, but the, the funny thing about the, the state fair was I only knew maybe four songs. Oh, really? Period. But I was like, it's the state fair. Nobody's going to stand around long enough to hear all four songs. So I can just play them on repeat. I can just loop them <laughs> right. and nobody's going to know. And, and you know what? It worked brilliantly. And at that, at that event, you know, um, somebody heard me and, and ended up connecting me with the group that kind of helped me get that cane show. So it was, it was kind of a full circle thing, but yeah, I mean, at at the time I was, I was the kind of kid, like I didn't care about music theory. I didn't have any interest in learning that. I was like, I want to play the guitar and I want to play this song teach me how to play this song. Right. So I found a guitar teacher that would do that uh, after going through quite a handful of frustrated guitar teachers that wanted me to learn theory. Um, finally found a guy that was willing to do that and uh, taught me a few songs. And I was like, all right, I'm ready to play a show. Let's go to the state fair. Right. Um, which is hilarious in hindsight. But I look back and I was like, man, you know, my, my oldest kid is, is a few years away from being eight. And I would just be really impressed if they had the you know the will or the desire to go out there and just like play and sing even if nobody cared like I I think looking back I don't realize but I didn't realize at the time but it's it's pretty it's a pretty uh courageous thing to do at eight years old and at the time it was just like this is what I want to do don't overthink it get out there and do it but right uh I probably should have been more scared than I was you know what I mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or nervous at least right yeah and so for the canes ballroom show i think you were 11 when that happened now at that point before that show or directly after that show was it like music is what i want to do for the rest of my life no i mean the canes ballroom show was offered to me so we played western swing music which is like what willie nelson listened to i mean it's this it's the evolution of country music one step prior to really like the the era of willie nelson and and christopherson and all of those guys so this is 
Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, Asleep at the Wheel, uh, those kind of that, that Texas swing, Western swing thing. And I knew nothing about that kind of music. But because those people had heard me sing at the state fair, they uh, they gave me a chance and they said, here's the music you need to learn. And if you learn this and you want to be the front man for this band, we can pay you. And I went, you can get paid to play music. I had no idea. I was right. like, this is amazing. I thought it's just something people did for fun. I didn't understand that you can make money doing this. Oh, okay. And, and so I, I didn't, to be honest with you, at the beginning of that, I didn't even care what kind of music I was playing. I was like, wow, I get to get on a stage and sing and people are going to hand me money after I get done. If I don't mess up, maybe they'll pay me. And so uh, that moment was just so magical. But it, what ended up happening is for five straight years after that, that band toured and opened for the Oak Ridge Boys and Roy Clark and John Conley and all of these like heritage country acts. And I just got thousands of hours of stage time. No, I didn't know that this is what I wanted to do at this point. Okay. But um, the moment that I did know that it's what I wanted to do, the band was breaking up. Some of these members were going to college. I was the youngest in the band. So that would put me at about 16 when the band broke up. Right. You know, I'd given five years of my, 16 years of life to this band and now it was done and so I knew how hard it was to get from you know year one to year five in terms of growing something and selling tickets and uh it was it was daunting and so now I thought I have to restart and it, that's I don't know if I want to do that maybe I just want to be a regular 16 year old kid that goes back to playing football and whatever right yeah and there was a moment that happened uh, at the Spirit Bank Event Center in Tulsa. Willie Nelson was coming through town, and um, <laughs> I scalped the ticket. And I'll I'll spare you the the long version unless you really want to know, and then we can dive in. You can ask questions, but yeah, I I made a sign while I was there with some cardboard that I found, and I borrowed a sharpie from some stranger, and I wrote on the sign. I said, "It's my dream to play a song with you." And the night progresses and I'm in the nosebleeds and find my way down closer, which I wasn't supposed to be down there. But, you know, you just act like you know what you're doing. and Hopefully nobody says anything. Right. Yeah. So I'm closer to the stage holding the sign up. And Willie, you know, he leans over the stage and he throws me a bandana off his head. And, and I catch the bandana and I put it in my pocket. And you could tell he was trying to get me to put the sign down because, you know, people paid a lot of money to sit that close to the stage and I'm <laughs> right. blocking their view. Oh, okay. So uh, I put the sign back up and he throws me another bandana like, really, kid, put the sign down. So I grab the bandana and I turn around and I give it to the guy behind me. And I'm like, sorry, dude. And I held the sign back up. And eventually he leans over and he goes, all right, what do you want to sing, kid? And I was like, at this point in my life, you have to realize that every concert I ever went to, I almost couldn't enjoy them because I was thinking about what I would want to do if I got the chance to be on stage. Okay. Uh, and, and so I knew as soon as he asked me, I was like, I want to sing Milk Cow Blues by Bob Wills. And his eyes lit up like, what in the world does a 16-year-old kid know a 1930s Western swing song for? Right, yeah. So I knew that Willie, I'd run this scenario in my mind. Like, I knew that he knew this song. I've seen him cover it before. I also knew that a crowd full of Willie Nelson fans did not want to hear some 16 year old sing one of Willie's hits. So that was going to be a non-starter if I was like, I want to sing Whiskey River. Like, no, they came there to hear Willie sing that. Yeah. So I played it out. I'm like, this is the perfect song. Plus, I've played this song 
probably over a thousand times by this point because I was in this band and we played this song every night. So I got up on stage and, and Willie let me sing this song and he was right next to the mic just because he didn't know. I mean, I could have got up there and been horrible. Yeah. He, he was ready to take over. He was right there. You know, he, I walked up and he goes, everybody, this is Corey and crowd goes crazy. And I start singing and he's right by his mic looking at me in case he needs to take over. And then as soon as I got through the first verse, he just smiled and backed off the mic, let me sing the whole song. And it was one of the most magical nights of my life. And uh, that was the night, you know, after, after that, after stepping off stage and going, okay, I think the universe just told me what I'm supposed to do. Cause I was, I was at the crossroads. I was this close to being like, I'm not restarting. I'm not going to go back after music again. And right. And that was that was the fire that got lit that that has never burned out and it happened on that night so what was it about that moment because like you say when the band was breaking up it was sort of like the thought of the grind of having to build this thing up yet again and the work it's going to take over five years to build this up but then you get on stage and just that rush that goes through you makes you want to kick start it again. So that rush that you felt on stage, that was strong enough to sort of overpower the thought of the work it was going to take to kick this thing again. Yeah, I think that it it's probably irrational, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it was like it was. It's like the best thing I can relate it to is like you play 17 holes of golf and you suck the whole time. And then on the 18th hole on your last shot, you hit that one good shot and you're like, okay, I got to come back. I got to, right. you know, and, and I'm not much of a golfer, trust me, but I've had that feeling before where I played horrible the whole round, hit one good shot and it kept me coming back. And that's, that's what this was really. It was like, you're talking yourself out of, you know, uh, it's a lot of work. It's really, it's hard. It's, you know, there's not a huge payoff. The odds are I'm not going to be one of the, you know, one in a million that makes it. So why would I waste time? And then you, you have that moment where it's like, but I'm on stage with Willie Nelson and nobody else in this 10,000 people are on stage with Willie Nelson, you know, and right, yeah. maybe I can beat the odds. Hmm. And, and it just re it relit like the hope and the dreamer in me that was like, somebody has to beat the odds. Why not me? And right. that was really like the, the turning point. And that, that's, that was the mentality shift that happened that night of, you know, it went from maybe I could to like, I absolutely can do this. It's just going to be really tough, but now I'm in, I'm the universe just told me like God himself could have put Willie Nelson right there and said, you're supposed to do this. And it would have spoke just as loud as what happened. Right. Like it just right, was, yeah so obvious that that this is what I was supposed to do and and like you said five years to that point of that band and I look at it now and I'm like man and then another 10 years after that Willie Nelson moment and here we are like it's taken a long time and I've been in the music industry for a long time but uh it's still somehow worth it 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 really is like the the highs are worth the lows every time right and I even somehow weirdly love the stuff that sucks about the music industry. Like we load in our own gear and put it in the trailer and drive for hours on end and then unload it just to play 
60 minutes of music and and I even love all the in-betweens that don't make any sense to love just because I enjoy that moment on stage so much. Right. And now the moment after Willie, you decide to move to Nashville. So at 17, you pack up, you move nine, 10 hours away from home to Nashville by yourself, not knowing anyone. So at that point in your life, were you a confident person? enough to go there and say, I know I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm confident that if I just put myself, put my life into this, that I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I thought that far ahead, really. <laughs> right. Like, uh, I, kind of ignorance was bliss at that stage of my life. Really? Like I, I'm, I drove out to Nashville and didn't even know where I was staying night one. And so oh, really, I got, I got pretty tired on the drive. It's almost 10 hours um, from where I lived. And I, I was like maybe 45 minutes outside of Nashville and got, got so tired that I was like dozing off. And so I was like, I need to pull over, pull over. And I was kind of worried because right before I left, so my dad's an attorney. And so he kind of said something. I don't even know if he'd remember saying this, but joked about like, don't, you know, you're going to Nashville. Don't be one of those guys that gets arrested for sleeping in his truck. And I was like, wait, is that illegal? Like, crap, I was planning on doing that. Right. I, and now maybe I'm going to get arrested. So I'm paranoid about going to be night one in Nashville and get arrested and have to, you know, my dreams will be ruined. And so right. I pull over and I found a, a, um, a hotel parking lot. So I'm like, well, lit people are coming and going at all hours of the night. It's not weird for a car to be parked there overnight. I'll park here. And, uh, I parked and went to sleep and it was freezing cold. And I woke up the next morning, I had a sleeping bag, but I was freezing. And I woke up the next morning and there was frost on the windshield. Like you could see snowflakes frosted onto the windshield. Oh, wow. And I'm like, man, this is miserably cold. And I, I wake up and I'm like, I wonder if I got a ticket. So I raise my seat up and I look over and to the left of me is another guy sleeping in his car. And I was like, welcome to Nashville. This is the dream, you know? Uh, it was awesome, but I don't think that I thought too far ahead in those moments of like, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to, I'm going to be X, Y, Z. I just knew that it's what I wanted to do. And I knew I would never do it by staying in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Bixby at the time. And so it was just the next logical step of like, this is, this is in here. Like, this is what I want to do. And I'll never know if I don't try. And so I'm just going to get out there, but I, I have always been pretty driven and focused and that came in to play more so when things weren't going my way. I would say like from the beginning, it was kind of like ignorance is bliss. Let's give it a shot. And then when things got tough, having a vision of like reminding myself, why am I doing this? What do I really want? Why am I going to keep working towards it? That's when that kind of confidence that you're talking about came into play. Right. And so after a year or two in Nashville, you went off to college at Oklahoma State. Now, what was the mindset within that? What were those first year or two like in Nashville? Were you going to college because nothing was working in Nashville? Or did you just think, I need the education because that's what's been instilled in me and I want to have that education. And then once I'm done that, then I can come back and continue this journey. Yeah, so two answers to that question. The first one is, uh, like I said, my dad is an attorney and at the at that point in my life, like music was not anywhere close to paying the bills. Right. right like I wasn't yeah. going to be able to support myself with music at that moment. And um, 
you know, he kind of equated success with you go to school, you get a degree, you get a job, you have some stability, and then you can do what you want, you know, for fun in your spare time. Right. And so that was, that was the mentality that was kind of like preached to me a little bit while they were still supportive of me chasing dreams. They were also trying to be realistic and like, Hey, if this doesn't work, you need, you need something to provide for yourself. And right. So they, my, my folks were like, Hey, we want you to go to school. And I was like, I don't want to go to school. I want to write songs and I, I want to live in Nashville. And right. they were like, well, we will help you go to school. And that was where like my logic set in of, okay, I think I would be kind of dumb to turn down the opportunity to go get an education at a discounted rate. You know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. A good deal is a good deal. And they just happened to be helping me, right. Make my way through school. And so a year after being in Nashville, I packed up and went back to Oklahoma state. Um, and that was what got me there. But then a couple of years, well, really my freshman year, I'm sitting in, entomology which is like bug class i'm learning about bugs i'm in the business school i don't know why they make you take this class it's probably just to make people quit college just you just weed people out you know yeah uh so i'm i'm taking a class about bugs in this huge auditorium and i'm just like what am i doing here and oklahoma state has always been really good about um connecting people so they connected me with um the dean of the school because they knew that I was playing music. I was touring with my band every weekend. I was starting to miss some class. Things were getting kind of busy, but they have a great music alumni at Oklahoma state. Oh, okay. They've got Garth Brooks. They've got a guy named Tim Dubois who wrote number ones, put together groups like restless heart started Arista records. I mean, just, and then you've got Scott Hendricks, who is currently helping run Warner Brothers and produces Blake Shelton and Dan and Shay. There's a great, small but mighty music history at this school. And so they right. connected me with the dean of the school um, or with the president of the university, rather. And they said, we want to help you graduate as a cowboy while pursuing your dreams of music. And so we're going to put you with a new advisor. We're going to help you kind of tailor this to what you need. And that was the most impactful thing that happened to me while I was at, at school was two years in, um, I was able to find out that I could go back to Nashville because I could finish my business degree online, but still graduate as a cowboy, not, oh, not okay. with any sort of lesser degree than I wanted in the first place. Right. So that was big. And in the middle of that, I'm, I'm touring all the time. I'm, I'm still taking online classes everywhere. I think I, at one point I had taken a test and like, 12 different states because I was touring. Oh, really? And I'm like burning out, really. And and there was one guy that I could always reach out to, and it was Garth Brooks. And I had been connected to Garth uh, just because we're both we both lived in Oklahoma. And basically, anytime I needed a pep talk, and I was like, what am I doing here? I don't want to learn about bugs. I don't want to be taking tests while I'm on the road playing music. What am I doing? And the one thing that he said to me that always kept me in school was number one, you can't write songs that people can relate to. If you don't live a life that relates to people, like the life that you live in these years that you spend in college are going to be the ammunition for the good songs that people will care about. Right. And he's like, if you just want to be a songwriter for the sake of being a songwriter and you just want to get famous because you want to get famous, that's all well and good. Like people do that and they might succeed at that. But 
I'm telling you, if you want to write songs that people care about, you have to live a real life. So don't rush into this. And I was like, I mean, it's Garth Brooks. How do you argue with that? And then yeah. the second thing that he would always say, and he'd always sign off with it. And I had, I had it framed in my room. He would email it to me, you know, he, before he'd sign off, he'd say, all right, partner, go kick college's ass, Garth. And I'd be like, all right, I'm going to kick college's ass. I'm just going to get through this and get back to my dream. And, but those were the two factors that um, kept me in school really was, was the opportunity to go. And then, you know, somebody OSU and, and Garth Brooks just encouraging me and allowing me, enabling me to do both. Uh, and I think it's pretty cool that I got to go to school in, a, in an era where it's possible to do both, you know, yeah. 25 years ago, you probably would have had to choose, you know, there was no online option to finish your degree. And so it's music or education, which one do you want? And, and thankfully we live in an age where you can, you can do both. And so I did both. You graduated in 2016. Now there's a lot to talk about between that and 2020, but because of time, let's skip ahead to 2020. You're building your career. You've released an album, a couple of EPs, and the world shuts down. Yeah. Now, where were you at mentally within that time? Were you secure enough within what you had built since 2016 to know you were going to be okay? Or was there a lot of doubt that was going through your mind throughout 2020? Oh, man. No, I was not in a place where I felt secure in music. Um, I had, so late 2019, early 2020, I had moved from Nashville to Texas to Dallas. Um, and the reason was, uh, one, I had lost my writing contract in Nashville. I was writing for Warner Chapel. There was some changeover in staff my person that signed me left and the writing was on the wall that I wasn't going to be there much longer. And so I lost my, my contract to write, which was my salary. Right. So the yeah. Only me in Nashville really was that writing contract. And we had, we had had baby number one uh, while we were living in Nashville, ended up deciding to move back to, to Texas just for family purposes. It was best for our family. And this is what we wanted. We wanted to raise our kids around grandparents, uncle, cousins and so we felt I felt like I was shooting my music career in the foot but I knew I was doing what was right for my family and so we get here and a few months later the world shuts down and I'm like oh no that like the way the only way that I had to provide for my family in that moment was live music and that was taken away and fortunately on my transition out um, I signed with Combustion who is a publisher in Nashville and I I told them, Hey guys, I'll, I'm going to live in Texas. And I know that it probably looks like I'm not committed to be the songwriter that you need me to be, but I will work harder than anybody. Like I need this to provide for my family. Right. I'll fly out here every week if I have to. And I did for a while. I flew out every single week on my own dime to make the thing work. And we got here and like I said, world shut down. I ended up having to take a, another job, um, which was the most painfully, humbling thing that I've ever had to do because like you said, like I told you, I mean, it was my goal to never have to do that, but the world changed. And, and I ended up going to work for a pavement company. My, my wife's uh, family, they have a pavement company here in Dallas and go figure Italian immigrants in the paving world. Uh, but I ended up learning how to estimate pavement, 
um, look at a bunch of blueprints, do a bunch of math and be, you know, get to go look in the field and try to figure out what everything costs was my job. And then I go, okay. but that was, uh, that was the hardest part just career wise of my life, because I didn't know if live music was ever coming back. It, it seemed like if anything was going to go away forever, it was going to be large gatherings and live events, right? Because yeah. it just, that's, that's what the world looked like. Um, but in that, in that time, I just started working harder and harder at writing. And I, you know, I came out the other side with a bunch of new songs. And I think a lot of people took that as a break. And I came out swinging because as soon as I had the opportunity to play that first show and it was in January of 21. Yeah. I mean, it was, I don't care how much money I lose. I don't care how much of a long shot this is. I'm just so thankful to be playing music again um, that we're going to, we're going to find a way to make this work. And, you know, that's, that's kind of exactly what happened, but it was not a secure time in life. And it was the more, most, most hectic career time that I've ever had. Right. And now coming out of the lows of 2020, like you say, 2021, your first show was in January with Flatland Calvary. And then throughout the year, you're playing with Parker McCollum, Randy Rogers, Aaron Watson, Colby Cooper, Cody Johnson, Ian Munsick, like all these amazing performers. You're playing amazing venues. I think you had just over a hundred shows throughout the year. So coming off 2020 and then at the end of 2021, was it just like a complete opposite feeling that you had? I mean, we went from the most doom and gloom looking scenario in my whole career. And within a year, we had turned it into the most massive year we've ever had. And the most shows we've ever played, like, I mean, January of 21, we got one show. And I think February we had two shows and to, if you would have told me that we were going to play more shows than we've ever played in a year, that year after the first two months had already gone by, would have been like, no way. And if you would have told me that you're going to release music and people are going to show up and sing along and you're going to, you're going to play everywhere from Madison, Wisconsin to Florida to Houston and everywhere in between, no chance. There were a lot of other years that I would have believed that that could have happened. Not this year. And I mean, it, it was just the craziest, most dynamic roller coaster year I've ever had. And, you know, I say that, and then here we are in 2022 and things have gotten even crazier, and yeah. more unexpected, but in a good way. And 21 was like, you know, lots of ups and downs and 22 has been like this. <laughs> yeah. Coming into 2022, you had the album at the end of 2021 and now coming into this year, you've released a new single, but it's not from the album. Now, what was the thought with that and not continuing with releases from the album, but going with something different? Well, the thought process for our, our crew has always been, you know, we, we kind of have made a living off of doing what other people won't do. Um, and we have the we have the luxury of, you know, we're in the formative stages. Like we were in the infancy of my career, really. Uh, even though I've been at it for a long time, like last year was really year one, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. And, and we've, we have the luxury of, we can do things and take chances. And if we miss, nobody really cares that we missed. If, if Kenny Chesney misses, everybody's going to be talking about it. 
you know, if he puts out a record that tanks, we're all going to be like, what happened to Kenny? Right. If yeah. I put out a record that tanks, nobody knows. So I was like, they, you know, the industry will tell you, you never should put out a record in between Christmas and New Year's ever. That's like the kiss of death. Nobody does that for a reason. Yeah. And I was looking at my team and I was like, sounds like nobody else is putting out a record between Christmas and New Year's. We should put out our record. And, uh, you know, my team was really supportive of that. And, and I don't even know, it might not have even been my original idea. Uh, I think maybe one of my team members was like, hey, you should, we should think about this. It could be dumb. And then I, you know, I was like, you know what? I love that, you know? And so we tried it and to our surprise, it worked and there weren't a lot of records put out and it gave ours a lot of spotlight and people started embracing that record. And then normally you would let that ride out for a while, right? You want to yeah. ride momentum of something and you don't want to put out something too soon. That'll take the focus away from that. And you know, I think six months is a pretty reasonable time after you put out a record to not put anything out. Six months is pretty early to put something out. You definitely don't put anything three months after you don't do that. And that's why we did that is because that's not what you're supposed to do. And we've had pretty good luck doing the opposite of what people tell us to do. So we were like, man, the record's doing really well. It's, it's still moving up. Like maybe we should throw something else out there and let it, let it all move up together. And so we put out Wild as Her. And uh, I, I mean, we thought it would do well, but we did not know that it would do this well. I mean, this, this song is like life changing and it's, yeah. it's trajectory of everything, which has been amazing. But the thought process was if people tell us not to do it, we're probably going to do it. <laughs> and now with the success that you've seen, I saw that you basically have gone from less than 100,000 monthly listeners on Spotify a year ago now to over 1 million listeners on Spotify. Now within that, it's amazing. But like you said, you put out the album when at a time when people don't put out albums because, you know, there's not a lot of eyeballs necessarily. So if it tanks, it doesn't matter. But now with that many listeners, that many ears, do you now have to start thinking more about what people are going to think in the future because you have so many people there? I mean, there's definitely, um, you know, a little more pressure to recreate the magic, right? But the brilliant part about the way that this team that I've assembled has approached all of this is it, while it has been kind of like, it has this rock and roll spirit in the way that we're approaching things of like, forget the status quo. We're doing whatever we want. Right. While, while that has done well for us, we've also been pretty methodical in the sense of the, the songs that we're going to release in what order we're going to release them. So we knew Wildest Her was next, but we also had at least five other songs that we felt like were better that it wasn't the right time to release them. That wasn't next. Wild as her was next. And so, yeah, while I do feel there's more pressure to, you know, uh, deliver now because there are more people watching, I'm not creating new music from a place of like, I got to figure out how to recreate this. Right. I'm creating from a place of abundance because I know that we already have the next five to 10 songs mapped out. And we don't know if we're, it is the rock and roll spirit also comes with like, we're flying by the seat of our pants here where, I mean, 
if I'm being honest with you, four weeks before we released Wild as Her, we had not made our mind up that we were going to release anything. And we were just like, you know what? It feels like it's time to move. Let's go. Boom. And so while I have the next 10 songs mapped out, I don't have, I don't know how they're going to release. I don't know if we're going to release a single or if we're going to release six songs together or if we're going to release a whole record next. I don't know. We, we, we kind of let the environment tell us what we, what, what we should do. Um, but I don't feel pressure in a negative way. It's like now we're at the starting line. Now we're playing with the big boys. You know, now, now we've got record labels, you know, making offers. Now we've got songs that are streaming with Morgan Wallen and Cody Johnson and all those guys. Okay, now, now we're in the ballgame for real. And now we get to release our, what we think is our best and see how we stack up against the best. So it's a pretty fun moment. And I think that we're ready for it. And, uh, you know, a year ago or even six months ago, I'm not sure that I would have said we're ready for it, but it's pretty cool the way it's all unfolding. Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to Corey for stopping by and sharing his story. Be sure to check out his newest single, Wild As Her, wherever you stream your music. Please also be sure to check out our website at countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content and also stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me and give us a follow there as well. Thank you once again so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Music